Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Welcome to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Today's question is very simply, is the U.S. Constitution living or dead? I have with me Hal Shirtleff, who is somewhat of an expert on this subject. Hal has, as part of his background resume, he's a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. He's the president of the Sam Blumenfeld Literacy Foundation. And for Chalcedon listeners, you know that Sam Blumenfeld was a good friend of Chalcedon and Dr. Rush Dooney. Ross House Books, our publishing arm, is the proud publisher of a number of his books. But today I have him with me because he's also the head of Camp Constitution, an organization that's dedicated to having citizens understand our founding document and understanding how it should be applied today. So thank you, Hal, for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. So my question is sort of tongue in cheek, because uh, I think it's pretty obvious that your answer is not going to be that it's living. And I hope you'll explain what people mean by that. Yes. Nor do we think it's dead. So why don't you set up why that question might even matter? Well, uh, it's, 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 it, is a, it is a good question. Is it living or is it dead? Because uh, folks on the left, and that might include neocons, neoconservatives, will say that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. Well, I actually have my little uh, pocket copy here on my table. And I'm putting my ear to it, and it's not making any sounds. It's not breathing. I don't have the stethoscope to see if it's uh, got a pulse or anything. So it's not living, and that's what, what they mean by that is that it was written at a certain time, but depending on what generation you're in, the times that it can change, the meaning can change as well as the culture changes, the meaning changes. We say, no, it's not a dead constitution, but we look at original intent. What did the founders mean by it? What did they mean when they wrote the Constitution? And they spent a number of months going over what they said. This wasn't something they took lightly. From May to uh, September 1787, they debated quite a bit over what, would, what went in that Constitution. So uh, it's not living in the sense that it's up, to, up for grabs every time you get a new Supreme Court justice. And even if you have a so-called leftist Supreme Court justice, you have an obligation to look at it as the meaning, not as your meaning. And as an example, the 14th Amendment has got nothing to do with abortion. And it's nothing, this pre-number of stuff you hear about. Somehow between paragraphs, this is what they meant. It's absurd. But that's what a lot of people believe, unfortunately. All right. So I'm going to ask a question that I have a personal opinion on it, but I know people often are eager for what's the correct answer. So why should America in the year 2020 have to go along with what people who back in the late 1700s thought was appropriate or not? What gives the founding fathers ideas and meanings precedence over people's meanings today? Well, because uh, the Constitution deals with absolutes, moral absolutes, that there's rights and there's wrongs. And they gave us a Constitution that could be amended. So they realized that, that there may be need, a need for amendments. To this. We may have made some errors, some things we didn't think about. And, that was, and to me, it's, uh, the founders were brilliant because they gave us these fractions. I'm not a, I'm not a mathematician, but I love two-thirds and three-fourths. You know, two-thirds uh, in the Senate to, for treaties, two-thirds to pass an amendment at the, at the congressional level, and three-fourths of the states that have to approve of it. And they gave us something called the Electoral College, which is just incredible. Thank God they gave us that. So I look at it as timeless. And I'm not equating the Constitution to Scripture. Don't get me wrong. The Ten Commandments came to us uh, a whole lot longer, a long time, a lot longer than the Constitution. So I look at uh, the fact that uh, 
absolutes truth goes beyond the time frames. Now, I know Dr. Rush Dooney spent a lot of time talking about American history and the Constitution, and he really described the Constitution as a procedural manual. In other words, it's not what gives people morality or virtue, but a moral and virtuous people need a procedures manual. And do you agree that that's the way to look at the Constitution? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I like to quote John Adams. When John Adams was president, he wrote a letter to some militia leaders in Massachusetts, some officers, and I'm not quoting verbatim, and it's a, it's a worth, letter worth looking into. And he said that this constitution, meaning the U.S. Constitution, was written for a uh, religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. And that really lies where the problem lies, I believe, in this nation today. So a lot of attention is spent talking about the Bill of Rights. And yet the Bill of Rights are amendments to the Constitution. And there are those who think that it's more important to understand the Constitution before you get into the Bill of Rights. Do you hold that view? Oh, absolutely. The, it's interesting, too. The term Bill of Rights didn't, it was, it came into use some years later. It's really a bill of what the federal government cannot do. And uh, that was some concern, and I can understand why there was some concern, but with the state the states, uh, they thought maybe if you didn't list something, we couldn't do it. So as it was being ratified, the, the, uh, there was a promise that there would be some amendments written, and they were within a few years. Uh, they were ratified, I think, uh, uh, December of 1791. In fact, there would have been more than 10. I think there was a, there was a whole bunch proposed, and it got down to about 12. And the very last amendment, the 27th Amendment, uh, dealing with congressional pay raise, would have been, if it was ratified back then, it would have been one of the original, it would have been part of the Bill of Rights. And again, the, 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 constant, the Bill of Rights simply restricts what the federal government can and cannot do. You know, the First Amendment, you know, guarantees the freedom of the press, assembly, freedom of religion. But it says that the federal government cannot create a, a federal religion, which is, at that time, there were a number of states that had state churches. So it just said the federal government's not going to create a state church, uh, a federal church. You can have your own. That's up to you. And it wasn't until, I think, the 1820s and 30s that most states started to get rid of their so-called state churches. If I'm not mistaken, Patrick Henry was not a fan of having the Bill of Rights or an amendments because he thought that once you started saying things and enumerating them instead of just sticking to the Constitution, that you would have all sorts of differing opinions and having the nature of the Constitution itself altered in intent. Do, do you think that's true? Do you hold to that view? Well, at the time, I may have disagreed with him, but I think what he's, it's true today. Now, I'll give you an example. The, they talk about the Second Amendment, and many people, even those in our camp that believe that we should have the right to keep and bear arms, they'll say, I have a Second Amendment right to do something. Well, we already, we already had that right. You didn't have to write an amendment to say we had the right. We already had the right to self-defense. And uh, state constitutions, of course, and a lot of people don't realize there are state constitutions, and some of them predate the U.S. Constitution, like the Massachusetts Constitution. And the wording in some of these constitutions is a lot more stronger. You know, for example, um, in, in I think the, the state of Pennsylvania that says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be questioned. So uh, the Second Amendment actually was interesting. The Second Amendment said that every state's guaranteed a, 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 a militia. And, uh, and of course, we really don't have a militia in the strict sense that the founders' uh, version of a militia, National Guard, is really the replacement. It, it says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the defense of a free state, the right to keep bear arms shall not be infringed. So it said Congress can't infringe on that. And so course, it's not the, the Constitution or the Bill of Rights as we know it, or these amendments that grant rights. Rights come from God, That's and the founders understood it. And so, from my understanding, the whole procedure that was laid out in the Constitution was specifically in recognition of those rights. And this was a document that wasn't supposed to limit people, it was supposed to limit this federation of states. That's correct. In fact, 
The Ninth and Tenth Amendments are the ones that sort of address that. The Ninth Amendment says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny the disparage others retained by the people. And the Tenth Amendment reads, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or to the people. So, for example, states can't coin money. States can't make treaties with foreign nations. That's in the Constitution. But there's a lot of things that's that aren't listed that states could do. It's long, so as long as the, con the Constitution didn't deny that uh, power to the states, then they can do it. I mean, look at freedom of association. That's not in the Constitution, but you know, people have that right. You don't have to list that right. It's just a right that we, we should be able to enjoy without any government interference. Exactly. Although, oh, they have been interfering with that one, haven't they, with this coronavirus. Absolutely. I call it the 1984 virus, so no more than 10 people closing churches down and other places of worship. Don't you think it's a reality that if more people really understood U.S. civics, if we hadn't had a dumbing down or an alteration of what the founding of this country was all about, that there would be less tolerance for the tyrannical moves of state governors and, and uh, local sheriffs and things like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we do as Camp Constitution, we do a lot of outreach events. Now, unfortunately, not as many uh, since the shutdown, but we're still out there doing things. And uh, we have a little 10-question quiz, which you can find on our website in the download section. And we ask people, fill the quiz out. We'll give you a free pocket copy of the Constitution. And most people, they like 80 90% of them fail miserably. And our job is to help people learn. Most people say, oh, I studied that in high school or junior high school. And they never picked up one since. And right. I say, you know, there are some things that you simply keep with you the rest of your life. You, you, you read a novel in school or, and you don't, you forgot, you forgot about the, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later. But the Constitution isn't something that you should be forgetting. And I think our elected officials love the fact that most people are constitutionally illiterate. Even you hear people, uh, you watch news, news that you tend to agree with people that you tend to agree with and they use the word democracy 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 and i hear it i want it's like scratching a blackboard <laughs> <laughs> we're a republic and where do we find that article 4 section 4 and is there a difference of course there's a difference our founders did not want a democracy they feared a democracy and explain why that is because i'm sure there's some people who'll be listening who will say isn't it the same thing aren't those synonyms you can use them interchangeably well, I heard someone say once, the difference between a democracy and a republic is like a chair and an electric chair. But <laughs> a, a, a democracy is simply ruled by the majority. And a republic, it's a Latin term. It means the public thing, ras publica, and in this case, the Constitution. But in a republic, the ma minority, and when I say minority, I'm not necessarily talking about a racial minority could be a religious minority, an ethnic minority, or an ideological minority, the rights of that minority are protected from the whims of the majority. And uh, so, in fact, James Madison in Federalist 10 said that democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, short in their lives and violent in their deaths. And many of the other founders had similar sentiments about a, or a pure democracy. I mean, we do have elections that are, in quotation marks, democratic but in order to be a voter there's certain qualifications not everybody votes although right. in some district in some cases dead people do a good job of voting people and in some cases they vote multiple times that's right as i saw a funny meme uh, the other day a man who was visiting a cemetery scolding his grandmother for voting for biden you know her <laughs> grandmother's been dead for 50 years <laughs> right anyway so, so a lot of people think in terms of democracy and the majority should rule. And I think that's part of the misunderstanding that fuels the idea that there should be no electoral college. If we just had the majority, and then of course, big cities, big urban areas would dominate because even though Wyoming's a bigger state than Rhode Island, there would there is possibly more concentration of people in Rhode Island, probably that's there right. is. So explain the whole idea of federalism and how when the, the country was founded, the U in United was not a capital. So these were the states of America 
as opposed to capital U, United States. Explain why that's significant. Well, at the Constitutional Convention, which convened in May of 1787 and ended September of 1787, there were states with large populations and states with small populations. And uh, there was a Virginia plan and New Jersey plan and what we call the Connecticut Compromise, where the largest states wanted to have bodies, uh, a bicameral legislature, a House and a Senate. They didn't initially, it wasn't called the House and a Senate. They wanted to be based on population. And the smallest states with small populations realized that they would have no say at all. They would be completely overruled. And so they came up with the idea of a House of Representatives based on population and then a Senate based on um, each state having two, two, two representatives or you know, two senators. And I think it's worked pretty well. And the Electoral College, I think, is it's just wonderful because uh, you look at the in California, it's a large state with a large population, and that state and New York and uh, maybe Illinois and a few others would have complete control and dominance over the rest of the country. And that would be, uh, I think, a very bad thing. So I think Electoral College was a really, and there are many times when the uh, Electoral College, uh, the the person who may have won the electoral vote did not get the popular vote. It happened uh, in 2016, and it's happened at some other times. All right, so we're hearing an awful lot about fraud, and by the time this podcast airs, there's probably going to be information or decisions that you know are still in the future. But what provision is there in the Constitution for fraud and deceit and the idea that someone might try to deceptively become the president of the United States? Well, our founders uh, understood man's basic nature. It's innate depravity. And even though maybe every single founder of the delegate of the convention was not a five-point Calvinist, they understood man's basic nature. So they gave us this wonderful checks and balance, and they uh, gave us a way that by the way, there's always been fraud since the first ballot was ever cast in the history of mankind, wherever that may have taken place. It's a question of, is it enough fraud to make a difference in an election? So you read some of these uh, reports, you know, some of these, uh, when they do fact checking, you post something on your social media and there'll be a fact check. Oh, the fraud, uh, election fraud is very, very rare. Well, there's a saying in Boston vote often and early for James Michael Curley. He was the uh, governor and mayor of Boston for many years back in the uh, early half part of the last century. So it does happen and uh, uh, it always happens. It's a question of, is it enough to make a difference in an election? So the constitution set up in uh, in the term electoral electoral college was, was used some years later, but electors that are chosen by the states and the states have a lot of say in how that's done and uh, as a number of years, we've had uh, a vote and the, the, the candidate that gets the popular vote in that state generally gets the electoral votes and the electoral votes are based on population. So you got a state like Vermont with a small population of about 550,000 people. They have three electoral votes. California, I think, has over 50. And they're supposed those the, the parties choose the uh, the individual electors and depending on how the, the vote comes out those electors then will assemble at the state state houses and they will cast their ballot but the state legislature under are the 12th amendment of the constitution they have a lot of say if they suspect some fraud uh, they they can intervene and they can actually change the outcome of that uh, of that election if, if they believe it's fraudulent has that ever happened um, I know. I know. There's been some examples of that, and I know also that there's only been one election where the candidates did not get enough electoral votes. You have to get a majority of the votes, and that happened in 1824 with the uh, John Quincy Adams eventually becoming president. He came in second. Andrew Jackson came in first, but the man running fourth, uh, Henry Clay, put his you know supported um, John Quincy Adams. So that was the only time. 1876, there was also uh, disputed uh, results in some of the southern states, but there was not, the House did not intervene. They made some kind of deal. They called it the Compromise of 1877. And they said, if we go for Hayes uh, against Tilden, you have to pull out the federal soldiers. You know, the Reconstruction ended. So that's what happened there. Uh, and then we had the case with 2000 with the so-called hanging chads where the Supreme Court had to intervene. 
And that was, I think that may have been the first time that the Supreme Court intervened in an election, a, a, a federal election. So what provision does the Constitution make in terms of, all right, whether it is decided by the Supreme Court, whether it's decided by the House of Representatives or the state legislatures, if people say, well, I just don't abide by it. And so you have a portion of the population saying, this person isn't my president. Mm -hmm. Does the Constitution provide for how to handle it if people refuse? I mean, I mean, I think that's where the whole idea of secession came about in right. terms of the mid-1800s. What provisions does the Constitution make for situations like that? Well, if, if by December 14, when the electoral voters cast their ballots and then they transmit it to the, um, the House and Senate, U.S. House and Senate, they're supposed to, I understand, have a joint session and they count all the ballots, vice president acting as a president, the Senate is there and so forth. Uh, if there's no clear winner, then the House, and this is under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, that the House will choose the president, and I think they take the uh, the top three, and in this case, it'll just be two of the top, you know, there isn't the third person didn't, you know, these third-party candidates didn't really get less than 10%, or maybe two, one or 2% of that in some states. So they vote by state. So they don't vote, you know, 435, they don't cast votes as individual members of Congress, they cast votes as states. And uh, right now, I think 26 or 27 states have um, Republican uh, majority. So that should be uh, uh, representation in the, uh, in the Congress. And then the vice president is chosen by the Senate, and that would be chosen by each senator has one vote. And uh, that's how that would be done. The Supreme Court wouldn't rule on the count, uh, the, the count of the electoral votes. They might rule on a case, like in the case of Florida, you know, they ruled on the case. And I know that President Trump has a number of states with his cases concerning the, the, ba the ballots that were so-called ballot harvesting and uh, people who were, uh, and of course, these, uh, the vote counting machines or the uh, software, which I think is the, the smoking gun in this case. So they might rule on that. To, to determine whether or not these votes are legitimate, but they won't, they won't make a decision when it comes to the actual electoral count. Okay. Uh, that's something up to Congress. And, and, you know, one of the fascinating things is that I know people on both sides of the, spe uh, of the spectrum will say, gee, if our guy doesn't win, the world is over. The president was never supposed to be that powerful. I mean, obviously the president of the United States is a very important office, but he has very limited duties and powers under the Constitution and plenty of checks and balances. I know there are some people uh, on the conservative or right, the Christian conservatives, what have you. Boy, if Biden gets in, he's going to do away the Electoral College. He's going to make D.C. a state and this and that. Well, they could try to get rid of the Electoral College. It's going to take an amendment to the Constitution. It can't just be done by a law. And it will take two-thirds of the House and Senate, and it will take three-fourths of the states to approve of it, which I don't think is going to happen. Now, he, they could make Puerto Rico a state, but D.C., in order to make D.C. a state, you'd have to make an amendment. See, D.C. got um, three electoral votes. I think it's the 24th Amendment. i got to check on that. Uh, so in order for D.C. to become a state, it's going to have to go through an amendment process, which, again, I don't think is going to happen. I don't think why, it would ever get. Why could Puerto Rico be made a state easier than D.C.? Well, it's a territory. And in Puerto Rico, the, the, the Congress has to agree by a simple majority. The president would have to sign it in and the people in that territory would have to agree. So that's how that would be done. So there wouldn't be an amendment. It wouldn't be an amendment process. But but D.C. was never set up to be a territory. D.C. was the nation's capital. They took portions of Maryland and they took portions of Virginia, 10 square miles, I believe is the, what it says in the Constitution. So, right. and, and when they got their electoral votes, they had to do it through an amendment. So they would have to do the same thing. I see. Something you said before, and um, I think I know the answer to this. You said that if it was to go to the House of Representatives, they would each state would have a vote. Um, yes. Currently, in terms of vice president, it's not like it would be up for grabs that you could have a new person be the vice president other than the man or the woman who was on the ticket with the, the president, or would it oh, be? 
oh no, you're right. No, it could happen that way. Yeah, I mean, they could, they could, they could vote. Let's say that Biden wins, they could choose Donald Trump as vice president. You know, when uh, I mean, it's probably not going to happen, but it's possible as long as you qualify for that. You, in order to be vice president, you have to qualify for president. You know, so if you serve two terms, two terms, eight years, and two of uh, another term, you you know, you don't qualify. You know, so it was interesting that now the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Is another, uh, and that's something that Nancy um, Pelosi had talked about, and I don't think she was looking at Donald Trump. They already talked about that early on his his administration. Well, the Twenty Fifth Amendment has a different provisions. At one point, when a vice president died, there was no way to uh, choose a, a vice president, and there was three vice presidents that passed away in the uh, in the nineteenth century. Uh, Franklin Pierce, his vice president, died before he. He was sworn into office in Cuba and died by the time he got home. And a few other presidents, um, I think it was Madison and Monroe had presidents that died, uh, vice presidents that died, and there was no way to do it. So the 25th Amendment, you know, had a way for, uh, for example, the time it was used when, when uh, Agnew resigned, Vice President Agnew resigned. So Nixon had to invoke the 25th Amendment, and he nominated, he chose Gerald Ford, who was a member of Congress from Michigan. And then when Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford chose Nelson Rockefeller. But the Senate, under that, the way I read it, they could have chosen anybody. They could have someone they liked. You know, they could have looked at Ronald Reagan when he was governor of Cal. Oh, we're going to choose Ronald Reagan, or we're going to choose uh, that theologian from California, Rush Dooney. You know, <laughs> you know that would have been that would have been interesting. <laughs> really, you said yeah. something that was intriguingly funny. That if it did go to the House of Representatives, and Biden. One, that Donald Trump could be voted as the vice president, which, of course, would make the whole idea of what happens if there's a tie in the Senate. Could he then run again for president if he was vice president? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, presidential term limits, which came out in the wake of Franklin Roosevelt, because he Heck, he'd still be in there if he if, <laughs> he served what four full terms, and it was was it his fifth term? He, uh, oh, oh, it was his fourth term. I think uh, he served three terms, and his fourth term he died in uh, forty five. So, uh, and and of course the the notion was well, you don't change horses in the middle of a race. Uh, you were we're in a, in a war. You don't want to change presidents, so we got to keep him in there. Under the the term limitations, a president can serve eight years, you know, two full terms. And uh, if he was vice president, he could serve two term, uh, two years, less than two years. So, uh, so if say a president dies, vice president becomes president, there's three years on that term, then he can only serve one term and not two terms after that. I think a little confusing. Uh, no, but, but it sounds like a great board game, you know, electoral college. <laughs> it, it does. It does. That's right. All right. So, currently, because I think the majority of people don't understand, or they get their civics lesson from the media, it seems to me that you could look at the bureaucracy in Washington as a fourth branch of government, and then you could look at the media with the current power as a fifth branch of government. What provision is there to rein these people back in? Because they hide under the idea of freedom of speech but at the same token, it doesn't seem to matter if they're telling the truth or not, or they tell the truth as they see it. Well, what's interesting is that um, the media calls the election. So CNN says uh, President Biden uh, Biden won the election. President-elect Biden is, is now called President-elect. Well, CNN doesn't have that power, but enough people want to agree that CNN calls it or AP calls it. In fact, when you see these disclaimers on Facebook, you, know, you post something about the election. I actually thought I was going to, trying to be humorous. I, I posted, Hal Sh Trump didn't win. Biden didn't win. I won. I am the new president. I'm the president-elect. I was hoping that, that they would put some kind of disclaimer on my comment. But I guess, I guess it has to be an article uh, with a URL maybe uh, before they do that. I, I posted see. a Babylon Bee. Um, that's a Christian satire site about Hillary Clinton. And sure enough, that disclaimer came up. So... <laughs> The Babylon Bee is taken seriously by Facebook, I guess. It's kind of kind of interesting. But I think the power is, um, first off, we know the, the, the I call it the, you know, fake, it's referred to as fake news, uh, corporate media. 
but there's alternative medias which I think we need to get involved in. I think we need to stop listening to some of these uh, these sources and tune into other more credible and reliable sources and not so um, yeah maybe biased, but the bias on these other it's I hear I hear the comment that these reporters are not really reporters but the party operatives with press passes, and that's pretty much what you have unfortunately. So uh, there's ways that, you know, there's all kinds of laws and rules and regulations concerning, um, you know, the media over the years, um, you know, but, uh, and what's tough is that they bring in Congress will, uh, the Senate had um, Zuckerberg and a few other, uh, the head of Twitter on there, and they, oh, they gave them this concept that this is a platform, and yet they're actually a publishing, you know, they're denying people, so uh, we have hearings, but usually nothing comes of it. You know, they're not any any kind of uh, any kind of serious reform. So I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, you post something that's true, and they'll tell you what you know. Independent fact checkers say this or that, and these independent fact checkers will refer to an article written from in the Atlantic Monthly, or they'll say that election fraud is very rare, and that's how they're fact checked, and that's how far they go. So uh, it, it is a problem. But I think we have to, um, you know, create our, I mean, look at this as a source of the media. We all, everybody that has a, a, a podcast or a computer and, uh, and a following can be a member of the media. We have a blog at Camp Constitution. I mean, it's not, it's not huge, but it's, it's one source. And there's so many other out, uh, reliable outlets out there. Instead of trying to squash free speech, because that's the problem. You, you have trouble when you, even if the, you don't like the speech. The problem I'm hearing, though, is this concept called hate speech. So the left will say, uh, oh, we love free speech, but hate speech, well, that's different. And well, what's hate speech? And, of course, the definition of hate speech is any speech the left hates. That's my definition. Right, right. But you know, any speech is critical of uh, those that they, that they promote. That's what they call hate speech. And that's kind of dangerous because then it, you're silenced. And, you know, Europe has that. Canada has that. They have these so-called hate speech laws. And people will go to jail. And you know, in, in Sweden, for example, if um, if you say that you believe homosexuality to be, if you say publicly that homosexuality is a sin, you will go to jail. That was passed a few years ago, almost unanimously. So, uh, so that's and you know that's something that could be happening here. That could come here. Right. John Adams was right. The Constitution isn't enough to make people good. What makes people good, certainly from a biblical perspective, is recognizing their sin and their need for Jesus Christ. So yeah. without that, you'll have all sorts of permutations. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. Boy, you thought that the world was going to end if Amy Barrett was approved for the Supreme Court. Uh, how important did the framers view the Supreme Court and what's your take on how politicized the view of the Supreme Court has become? Well, the Supreme Court was the least powerful branch. It's simply, you know, Article Three. It, very, they have very limited duties, and they're not. They were never supposed to overturn state laws, which they've done. Um, it's become very powerful, very politicized. And you know something? For years, the conservatives, pro-lifers, of which I'm a very staunch pro-lifer. We thought, gee, if we just get the right justices, we'll be able to overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, Roe versus Wade was a Supreme Court decision. And I hear people say it's the highest law of the land. It's not a law. They simply said that I think it was Louisiana where, uh, where, the, where the, the case originated or Missouri. It was Texas, actually. Oh, Texas. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Texas. Uh, it said that you know, your abortion laws are uh, you know, null and void. Well, they never had that kind of power. And now who enforces a Supreme Court decision? Exactly. Supreme Court doesn't have a police. It doesn't have an army. It's the, it's the executive branch, the attorney general. You know, it's interesting. We have a lawsuit against, a Camp Constitution has a lawsuit against the city of Boston about a Christian flag. Uh, we wanted to raise the Christian flag on City Hall Plaza where they, it's a, a public access flagpole where they raised flags of communist China, they raised the transgender flag, did you really even know there was such a flag? Uh, they raised the pink, the rainbow flag, they raised the flag of, uh, did I say communist China? And not only do they raise it, but city officials often participate in the flag raising ceremony of communist China. 
But the Christian flag, because it has a little red cross, a little Latin cross in the left corner, that's somehow against the, it's a violation, a horrible violation of the First Amendment. And I remember when, they, when, when the, we started uh, launching the suit back in 17, my comments were like, do you really think the attorney general is going to get on a plane and fly to Boston and arrest the mayor of Boston and the city council because they gave me a permit to have a ceremony acknowledging uh, the Constitution and America's Christian heritage and Boston's Christian uh, history? Do you really think that's going to happen? Do you really think the average Bostonian who's liberal, who's secular, is going to say, oh, my goodness, Boston is now a Bible, officially a Bible belt. Because that flag flew for about five minutes or, you know, an hour or two hours on a flagpole. You know, it's, it's absurd. Rush Dooney was somewhat adamant that there is no such thing as irreligion, that everything is religion one way or the other, even stating that you're an atheist is a religious belief. And what's become the status quo isn't so much that the federal government can't interfere or intervene it's become, it will intervene when it comes to Christianity, claiming that everything else isn't really a religion. Yes, there was a uh, Supreme Court decision back in the early 60s, 60s Tarasco versus Watkins, I believe it was called. And it said that secular humanism is a religion. You know, you don't have to have a, a heaven or a hell to be a religion. You know, you could have a secular religion. And humanism is the deification of man. And I look at uh, the churches in the humanism or the public schools, the public, the state colleges and so forth. So, yeah, that's definitely a religion. Communism is a religion as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And I would say that the, the de facto religion of Boston is humanism, secular humanism. I say that major, most major cities are the same way in some states. In fact, it's interesting when we hear this term separation of church and state, that's not in the First Amendment whatsoever. There's no mention of that. That's right. something that was conjured years later. But I believe that there are many churches that are, in essence, state churches. I did a little uh, video. It's up on a YouTube channel. I said, is the rainbow flag the de facto flag of, I think I used the term apostate churches. And I took a, I, I visited, I was on the outside of the church where they were flying rainbow flags. And I said, hey, we're here in this town and this city and the front of here. And here's this rainbow flag. And here's a rainbow flag in this church and that church. I said, they're flying these flags in these Unitarian churches, Episcopal churches, some of the more left-wing Methodist churches. I said, that's evidence that the rainbow flag is the official flag of these churches but also that these churches are state churches because they embrace evolution, socialism, and the acceptance of homosexuality. And that's what many states have embraced. And, and those think, are the dogmas of humanism. Exactly. So these are, you know, de facto, they're not de jure, but they're de facto state churches. And people say, oh, separation of church and state, really? I mean, the Unitarians were, and, and, our, and our dear late friend Sam Blumenfeld did a lot of research on the Unitarians in his um, NEA Trojan Horse in American Education. You know, it was, uh, and he referred to uh, our, our, our school, public schools as Unitarian prep schools. You know, I mean, the Unitarian Church isn't some vibrant, vibrant, growing entity. Uh, the one down the street from my house, named after a member of the Secret Six, Theodore Parker. They have the rainbow flag and they have the Black Lives Matter banner. And uh, you look, they had a little picture of their members. They're all white people in their late 50s or older, you know. <laughs> right. All right. Before we go, what do you think of the move to have another constitutional convention? There are those who call themselves conservative who say what we need is to have a convention of the states and fix what's broken. What's your take on that? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's, I think it's very, very dangerous. And there, by the way, there are people on the left and the right that both oppose and support one. As I would say, especially in these days where you have such open division and hostility, I think it would be very dangerous. Now, Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution is the, where the amending process is. And the two ways to amend the Constitution, the first and only way that was ever utilized was for two-thirds of both the U.S. House and Senate to approve of an amendment, and then it goes to the states for ratification where you need three-fourths. Uh, 
And the second way is for two thirds of the states to apply for an article for a convention. And then um, if you have two thirds and they're recognized, Congress will recognize that these maybe these, these applications are legitimate and then they would have a convention. But there's a, plenty of pitfalls to a convention as special. James Madison, by the way, was very much against one. He thought it was uh, it was very dangerous to, and this was just in some, you know a, a couple of years after we had the Constitution, uh, the, the first con the the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Um, one of the problems with the uh, of an Article Five Convention is that there are no laws or rules governing such a convention. We don't know what, what you know. It's like Nancy Pelosi. Let's pass Obamacare, and we will uh, worry about what's in it after we pass it. And that's the same problem. And then the other question is, who will the, who will the delegates be? You want to have this this operation? You say you the patient, the Constitution is, is sick, and it needs to be into this uh, this operating room. Well, who's your doctor? <laughs> you know, when my wife had a surgical procedure uh, some years ago, we saw the doctor. We saw all his degrees in Latin on his wall, and he was a specialist and the anesthesiologist that looked like Sean Connery. Yeah, okay, these guys know their stuff. <laughs> uh, would you walk into an operating room and not know anything that, of the Constitution? And the other thing is that they say the Constitution has some serious defects. No, I think the Constitution is pretty good. There's a couple of amendments I like to see repealed, but I'd rather suffer those right now than, than uh, face a, um, a, a convention because you don't know what will happen. Also, the, one of the big concerns is... Uh, how will the, the ratification process, will they change it? How will the delegates vote? Will they vote by state? That's what they did in 1787. Or will it be uh, by popular vote? So will the delegates be based on population? That means California will have, what, 50 plus? And then what's the what's the mindset of these delegates? Exactly. You know, are they, I mean, are they going to have the same mindset of the founders or even close to it? I would say about maybe 3 or 4%. I mean, right. look at Matt. I, I tell when I testify in Massachusetts against one, you know, uh, I'll say, do you really? Uh, well, or when I'm speaking to fellow conservatives uh, in Massachusetts, I said, do you really want Massachusetts to send delegates? What, what do you think is going to happen? What kind of delegate? Do you think I'm going to be a delegate? Tell me what you think the place for someone who wants to study the Constitution, what place do, do the Federalist Papers have? in an understanding of the original intent and the context of the Constitution? Oh, I think it's a great source. It's a great source to have a, a good, clear understanding. Although it was written, it was written uh, in letters to the editor uh, for farmers. So today's college grad would be, would be challenged by it, I think. Now, of course, not your listeners, uh, uh, not people who, uh, if you can read Rush Dooney, you go, you probably have no trouble reading the Federalist Papers. <laughs> right. I'm actually thinking that people should be encouraged to check out also, your website, Camp Constitution, yes. to have a systematic way of learning what either they learned and forgot or learned incorrectly. Yes. We, we, uh, if you go to our website, campconstitution.net, you, there's a link to our YouTube channel, and we have playlists where we have some of our great instructors over the years uh, discuss the Constitution. So um, that's, a, that's a good resource. We have some great downloads. We have some, a lot of information on the dangers of an Article 5 convention as free downloads as well. So we, you know, and we have a part, we, have a, we do a half-hour uh, radio show and uh, we upload them on Podomatic, and we have a lot of uh, great guests that uh, you can access and learn about the dangers of an Article 5 convention and a lot about Agenda 21, the Constitution, and, and, and just current events, too. All right. Did the Constitution envision that there could be a time where states no longer wanted to be part of the federal government? And I remember asking Dr. Rushduni this question, and he said, well, it's not that it's a moot point. It's just a war was fought and secession was deemed illegitimate. And then those states were brought back in. But now you hear talk about secession, that people yes. you know, want to split California, which wouldn't be secession, but it would be splitting a state because a good portion of the state doesn't think like the concentrated urban areas. So- is there a peaceful way to have secession? 
that that's a really good question. I know that there are there are those who didn't think the Constitution would last that long. Back, you know, the founding when the Constitution was written, a generation, two generations, uh, it's got some great staying power, thankfully. By the way, there was a convention called the Hartford Convention. Uh, it was uh, New England uh, that took place in Connecticut where they wanted to secede because they didn't like the War of 1812, which uh, closed a lot of the ports. It was a lot of uh, things that they didn't like. Uh, they were, hey, we were making money with England. We don't want to be war with them. We want to keep the ports open. Do anything we don't. So thankfully, there was no secession. Vermont was going to secede uh, prior to the Civil War. They had thoughts about it. They never formally seceded. So uh, it's interesting. I know some of my uh, unreconstructed Southerners friends will say, of course, secession. Uh, it's never mentioned in the Constitution. But of course, the state could leave. They came in and, and they, could, they could leave voluntarily. But I do like the idea of maybe state splitting. Uh, the, but the problem is, if California is going to split and become a, a, you know, another state, you still have to have the majority of the legislators in Sacramento approve it. And that's probably going to be hard to do. I mean, I look at Maine. Um, I get up to Maine on a regular basis, and uh, Maine has a very interesting, one of the only two states where they, uh, they uh, it's not winner-take-all uh, when it comes to um, the presidential election. So Donald Trump got one electoral vote, and the more conservative area is northern Maine. That would be great if that could become a separate state. Uh, but I think the better issue is maybe just to have, um, not to have winner-take-all, but, you know, electoral voters, because then in some of the more conservative pockets of California. I'm moving to New Hampshire. My family and I are moving next, uh, next month. And I tell people that maybe my vote will matter for a change, you know. I see. At so least in some things. Does the Constitution say winner take all? No, that's up to the states. The I states see. have a lot of, you know, uh, under the Article uh, the 12th Amendment. First, it's uh, Article 1, and then there were some changes because it used to be that the Vice president was a guy that came in second place, you know, and they changed that after the Aaron Burr became vice president and there was some, some problems there. They decided to have the pre vice president chose on a separate ballot. I see. Well, you know, I could go on asking you questions all, uh, <laughs> all night, but I realized that to really have good questions, it's important to be informed as to what the constitution actually says. And I think rather than spending inordinate amounts of time, certainly with homeschooling families, but even in Christian schools, yeah, it's important to know geometry. That's great. But it's more important to understand civics. And as you pointed out, having people who actually could pass a very straightforward test that those who were part of the country right after it was formed would have been able to answer those questions that people cannot answer today. That's correct. In democracy in America, and again, I'm paraphrasing, uh, Alex Tocqueville said something like it would be as rare as Haley's Comet to find someone who didn't know the Constitution. Today, it would be as rare as Haley's Comet to find someone who does know a lot about the Constitution. It's, uh, and that's really our challenge, you know, to help people learn about it. And I do want to mention that we have an annual family camp. Uh, our website, uh, campconstitution.net, next year's camp is going to be at the Singing Hills Christian Camp in New Hampshire, beautiful venue, July 18th to the 23rd. We always have a great lineup of instructors and a lot of great recreational opportunities. We started a ladies' retreat, and it's going to be in October. Uh, we, still, we, had one, we had one just this, this, past, um, this past month, and it was very successful. We actually do some shooting, too. We we teach marksmanship uh, and we teach some uh, martial arts as well as how to, def how to defend things, you know, verbal martial arts as well as physical martial arts. So it's, it's a great time. And uh, we also host the Sam Blumenfeld Archive, which is a great resource for homeschool, is a free resource. We have people all over the country and even all over the world that are, are you know, learning, more, learning about Sam's work and using it. We had a lady... Uh, uh, an African from South Africa who had a class of uh, disabled students um, learning, they were learning disabled. And she said, two years, there was no progress. I found your, your archive. And in two weeks, 17 of the 19 students became proficient readers. That's wonderful. And, yeah. So uh, and I know Sam was a good friend of uh, Rush Dooney. Sam, we actually have some of their correspondence I know uh, Sam considered uh, Rush Dooney his, you know, his um, spiritual father. 
you know. Well, uh, Sam is the one. Sam used to come to California to visit Calcine once, twice a year. And he and I would always meet up in Palo Alto. And because I'm not that close where I live to where Calcedon is. And we would go out. And I remember he was the one who told me um, I was 10 years into homeschooling. And he said, you should write books. And I, and I looked at him like, who would read my books? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you should write books. Well, when I was 25 years into homeschooling, I figured I had something to say. And I credit Sam with uh, putting the idea in my head. That's great. Yeah. I, you know, I look at, um, we had a, a, we had a meeting at our Lane Learning Center. We actually have a place in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. And any of your listeners would like to get a hold of us through our website, uh, which is a short distance from the Lexington battle site. And you want to get a tour of the place, we'll be happy to bring you there. Anyway, the, um, we were talking about what's happened. Why are so many uh, young people in our churches? Why are they leaving the church? And why are they, uh, you know, supporting causes that are diametrically opposed to the Christian worldview? And I said, well, and in our in the Lane House, we have some of Sam's library in the corner, some of his artifacts on display. And I said, I had the privilege of knowing Sam Blumenfeld. I met him in 1988, and early on in our friendship, he said, never put your child or your children in government schools. And I took his advice and my children are, they love the Lord, you know, the, uh, they're following the Lord and uh, never gotten any tr problems. They're not voting to support communism or socialism. They're not, my son isn't a Bernie bro. And I said, <laughs> you know, I said that even though my wife and I were not perfect parents, I thought we did a, a decent job raising them. Uh, my youngest now is 16. And, and I said, but it was Sam's influence. And my wife spoke up and she said, she said, one time she said, can we at least put him in school for a year? And I said, absolutely not. And anytime we had little misgivings, because it could be very challenging, as oh, you know, yes. I would get one of Sam's cassettes, you know, and play it. And I'd say, what were we even thinking, you know? And we do on our, on our, um, on our Samuel Blumenfeld archive, we have maybe about two weeks worth of his speeches, audios and his videos. So uh, all kinds of great resources. There. So sometimes, again, it can be very challenging, but just put in, play one of Sam's, uh, Sam's presentations, and uh, then you realize, of course, I'm never going to put my child in the government school. Right, right. Well, Hal, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I now have things I need to pursue because there are questions that came up, and I said, well, I don't have to have Hal answer my questions. I can go research this for myself. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. God bless you. Oh, God bless you. Bye. Thank you, listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this podcast or other things you'd like us to talk about, feel free to contact us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.